there's enough emotion sometimes in the world or in, in my working world when you're dealing with business owners and startups and entrepreneurs that are dealing with a whole bunch of things going on and, and anxiety is high enough as it is. So my uh, one of the biggest takeaways is, is that I try to keep myself pretty level-headed and, and leave the emotions uh, for somebody else to have. But I need to be that calming influence when we're having that conversation with somebody to say it's going to be okay. Hey there, Powder Cake fans. This is episode 106 of Powder Cake Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we've got a very special episode with two guests from Charlotte, North Carolina. First up, we have entrepreneur Eric Major, the founder of Bundle, an app that gives home buyers and mortgage shoppers a place to uh, sort of start as they learn, understand, and manage the whole mortgage process. I would have loved something like this earlier this year when I bought my most recent home. Uh, Eric was formerly a director of Movement Mortgage and a VP at Citibank. Eric is a financial services leader with over a decade of experience building high-performing teams uh, and is passionate about helping home buyers navigate this whole mortgage process. Great to have you on the show, Eric. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Matt. Next up, we've got Brandon Martin. He's a principal with the technology industry group at CLA. I've spent some time with Brandon uh, in multiple different states around the country. He is super knowledgeable about this tech space uh, and so very aptly is a leader in the tech group at CLA. That's Clifton Larson Allen and its professional services firm, the eighth largest accountancy firm in the United States. Brandon has more than a decade of experience working with entrepreneurs and leaders to build financially strong, successful businesses. Uh, we use CLA at Powder Keg, and we're really grateful to have the relationship with them as we continue to scale nationally. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Brandon. And then also as a veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces, thank you for your service as well. Well, thanks for having me. That's a pretty humbling intro, but I uh, am certainly glad uh, to be a part of this. So thanks for having me. Yeah, th this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm very eager to talk to both of you because so much happening right now in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I know um, in particular, uh, Bundle is really taking off. So I'm, I'm eager to hear about that startup story. Uh, but first, I want to learn just a little bit more about each of you. So now, Brandon, I've been saving up all these questions to really uh, better understand kind of where he came from. And Eric, uh, after reading uh, a lot about Bundle, I've got a ton of questions for you. Uh, but I'd start with you, Eric, and just better understand how did you get into this crazy world of entrepreneurship? Was it something that you knew you wanted to do your entire life or was it something that crossed your path and you just couldn't not do it? No, it, it really was, was um, the, the second piece, right? So it's not something I, I necessarily thought of uh, that I wanted to do all, all my life. I grew up here in Charlotte and so it was a little bit, you know, I always thought it'd be cool to work for Bank of America, sort of the shining building on the hill here in, in town. And, um, and I did work for Bank of America for about four years and then switched over to a, a, a national leader in uh, mortgage lending movement, mortgage and um, some other banks as well. But um, really how I stumbled into the entrepreneurship world um, was a little bit by chance. It was, it was through my, you know, through my previous job where I was um, running some finance teams at Movement Mortgage and came up with this concept, came up with this idea. 
And the reason I knew it was a really um, uh, time to take that step is because I was actually ex extremely happy uh, with the job that I was currently in. I loved the company. I loved the people I worked with. I loved my team. It was a team that I, I was able to build um, from the beginning. And so it was a, just a really solid experience. And so it was sitting in that sort of situation of um, happiness, I guess, and then, and then not being able to stop thinking about this idea that I had. And so that's how I knew it was a little bit, you know, it was, it was real and, um, you know, clearly had some pretty in-depth conversations uh, with my wife. I'm, I'm married with two young kids, so I'm not, you know, a, a software engineer right out of college that um, can afford to live on ramen noodles for, for multiple years. So a little different situation than a lot of entrepreneurs, but, um, but yeah, that's sort of where uh, where I, where the idea came about and how I got started. Well, I, I would love to dig in more about that sort of like moment of truth of, of are you in or out? Are you going for it? Uh, but first, we'd like to just get a better understanding of like what was your day to day that you're doing as someone who has not worked in the mortgage or finance industry at all. It's hard for me to imagine kind of what that work was like. I, I've got a better understanding of what you're doing now as a startup CEO than right. what was it like working there at, at Movement Mortgage? Yeah, so the bigger company, the, the bigger of a company that you work for, the smaller and more particular your job is, right? And so um, every job that I had at, whether it was Citibank or Bank of America, when you started telling people what you were doing there, um, and especially in some of the positions that I was um, in where it was very heavily analytical, you immediately started to see in their um, eyes gloss over a little bit and, you know, want to, you know, talk about, you know, the game on TV or whatever it was, right? And so um, in general, I've done a lot of credit risk analytics. So looking at the millions of customers of large banks and figuring out uh, who is more likely to pay their mortgage back or who is more likely to pay their credit card uh, back and trying to either price that risk um, or work with um, some of the origination teams to make sure that you're um, approving applications that you should uh, be improving. And then um, at Movement Mortgage, my role expanded a lot where we were doing um, uh, a little bit more responsibility. We um, had a treasury group over uh, about $2 billion in, in uh, credit lines that we managed. That was sort of how we funded the, the mortgages. Um, we had that. We had all the business intelligence, which is really insightful. It's really, you know, putting measurements and KPIs in every single group and working with CEO, CFO, COO, and really figuring out how you want to measure um, a, a business and a company and, and individual units within that company. And so tons of really great conversations there and a ton of opportunity to really learn how sort of the engine works on the inside of a mortgage company. What were some of the bigger insights that you got there that have really informed this opportunity? Like when did you start to sort of connect the dots and be like, okay, there's got to be a better way? Yeah, so I think one of the um, one of the uh, key things for me was um, we started to dip our toe into what's called direct to consumer mortgage lending, which is you buy, you know, you you know, a, a typical way you would do this is you would buy leads um, online, and you could uh, you would call those leads, and then you would try to see, you know gauge interest of those potential customers of if they um, wanted to get a mortgage with you, right? And so once you started digging into some of those numbers, you realize that some of those lead sources, 
you might buy a hundred phone numbers and close one of those loans. So you're calling a hundred people to close one loan and you're not calling them one time. You're calling them six or seven or eight times because that's what the math says. So you're calling, you're making 600 phone calls to close one mortgage. And that just didn't seem right. I was like, what are the externalities to the, to the home buyers or the potential home buyers of all those phone, phone calls? And, and remember, um, or, or, you know, just another piece of information there. So one company is calling six or seven or eight times. A lot of those leads are sold to five or six companies. So you may be getting 50 phone calls from five or six different banks which I just didn't feel like is a really good uh, customer experience, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I can, can only imagine uh, having a family, having a, a salary at a large mortgage company and uh, having that conversation with the, with the wife on, hey, I think I wanna get rid of this safe, secure salary and go, uh, go do something a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. How did that conversation go? as much as you're willing to share. Oh, no, I, I think it's really important, especially so for anybody who is thinking about taking that, you know, jumping off into the deep end of entrepreneurship, you know, and, and you have a significant other, that's probably one of the things that I feel like I've done the best is just sitting down at the kitchen table, kids are in bed, hey, Jess, I have an idea, and let's just talk through it. And, and get down to specifics of like, here's where our savings are, here's what, what we really feel is important, and how do you sort of um, make sure that you're on the same page there. So here's all the different directions this thing can go, and making sure that you're, you're um, on the same page that whole time, and, and you know, have check-ins throughout the process. And, and, um, and so that initial conversation and sort of setting up that communication early on is just really, really key for somebody who is in my situation. Yeah, or really any, any big career moves, right? Uh, right. Probably good advice to uh, yeah. actually be on the same page as your significant other. Yeah. Uh, but t talk to me a little bit about what you're doing now. Can you give me kind of the elevator pitch of, of bundle loans? Because I, I know um, you're really disrupting the way that uh, getting a mortgage and buying a home is done. Uh, right. I had a chance to check out the product a little bit online. Um, but maybe for, for those listening who are unfamiliar, you could give us a, the quick elevator pitch. Yeah, so the, the, the quickest one sentence is we help you find a mortgage, right? And, and we do that in a way that nobody else is, is doing it. And, and if you ask somebody, if you were going to buy a house, how would you find a, a mortgage? Most people don't even know where to start, right? They don't know, do they ask a friend? A lot of times a realtor will give a recommendation. Um, and, and so... That's really what we do. And, the, and the, the key differentiator, I mentioned all those phone calls earlier. So we want to make sure. So we said, okay, everything, everybody's doing things um, to try to check off some boxes of what lenders and banks want. But how do we sort of create a process? Um, uh, you know, throughout my career, a lot of really, really good friends have come to me and said, I'm thinking about buying a house, but I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know where to start. Um, and, and how do you sort of answer uh, that sort of anxiety piece for them. And so we've built the entire process um, around that person who doesn't really know where to start um, and might be uncomfortable. And, and the, the solutions that exist today, um, you know, you feel like you're doing the right thing. You're going online. You might be doing some research 
and you enter some information in a place that maybe you weren't supposed to, and next thing you know, you're getting blown up all day for two or three weeks, you know, and so you don't want that, you, you, your, your heart's in the right place, you're trying to do the right thing, um, but you end up on a spot that uh, isn't really the best for the customer. So that's, that's exactly um, where we try, you know, that's, that's what we're designing every day is that process. Well, and you're, in, you're in an interesting spot right now because you're in, you're in the startup phase, but you're kind of past that initial ideation phase. Can you, can you give us a little bit of um, sense of the scale and stage that you're at right now as a company? Yeah, so we just recently launched our Bundle 2.0 product over the past couple of weeks, um, which was really based off of um, user feedback. We had a, a huge, um, uh, huge response when we first released our, our beta product earlier in the year, and you just um, you learn so much um, from doing that, and just where people are flowing in, in your application. Um, through conversations of what what makes this product even better, um, and so we've incorporated a lot of that work um, in our most recent release to try to make it as seamless um, as possible. Um, and um, so going into the fourth quarter, you know we've got a lot of great uh, lenders signed up on the platform, and we're just we're expanding that. We uh, just recently hired um, a head of sales. And, um, and so that has been really, really helpful because that's a piece, um, that you, you quickly realize you need your foot on that gas at all times. Right. And so if I'm messing around with, uh, Brandon working on some accounting stuff, I'm not, you know, I'm not out selling the product. And that's something that you really have to pay attention to, um, all the time. Right. And so I'm, so happy with the hire that uh, that we made. His name is Marco Bergarello, and he's just been awesome the past couple months, and um, such a good move, and and sort of alleviated some of that uh, uh, um, need that we had to make sure that we're getting out there and getting our product in front of people who want it. Yeah, congrats, man. Uh, and I want to dive into more of some of those lessons that you've been learning, um, because I'm sure that our listeners uh, always appreciate those lessons learned so they can learn from them, uh, you know, from a, from afar, uh, right. as you know, before they encounter them in real life. Um, uh, but curious how you and Brandon got connected. So Brandon and I, we, uh, are now, you know, we, we, I'm a client of, uh, CLA, uh, but, uh, previous to that, we actually grew up about 10 miles apart in neighboring towns and, uh, through, through sports and high school uh, sports, we, we knew of each other and, uh, and met a, a few times in high school and just stayed casually connected for, you know, the last 10 years. And then recently, as I entered the startup game and he was already sit, sitting here, uh, we, we've sort of uh, had drinks a couple times, had coffee a couple times and really um, have sprung up that relationship again from you know, 20 years ago when we were uh, in high school. And he's a, he is actually, a, he was an, uh, a star basketball player uh, across town uh, from me, ended up playing down at the Citadel um, uh, after we graduated. Nice. Well, and I, I definitely want to hear, Brandon, I know you work with tons of technology companies and startups uh, throughout the Carolinas, which you kind of oversee that technology practice at CLA. And I definitely want to get to that, but want to first start with your uh, star basketball career. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that was like as a, as a 
Hoosier myself, I, I certainly enjoy hearing about basketball. And I, I find a lot of times uh, with executives and leaders, um, the lessons learned in sports carry on throughout the professional career, family life, and everything else. So uh, take me back to those days of, of uh, getting on the court. And uh, I, I don't know what, what position you played, but uh, what was it like being that star basketball player there in Charlotte? Well, as uh, Eric mentioned, we were, uh, I think at the, the front end of this, we both acknowledge that we're both uh, here from the Charlotte area. And you mentioned unicorns as we kick this thing off. He, he and I are somewhat in, in that in that uh, world of the unicorn of being the few that are actually from this area. So it's always interesting when I, you know, run into someone and, and, and I talk to them and they hear my accent. And they're saying, where are you from? Uh, yeah, I'm from the suburbs of uh, Charlotte where I picked up more of the Southern accent. But the reality is, is yeah, I've been here my, my entire life and um, grew up in a uh, little area called Rock Hill, South Carolina. And then when I was 15, I, I moved to uh, Fort Mill, South Carolina. And that's where I you know, played uh, high school basketball. Star might be an overstatement. Uh, I was I was good, you know, but I wasn't great. Uh, I guess good enough to, to go to the next level and, and play for a little while. Uh, the, the lessons that, that I gained from, from playing sports that I think carry me uh, to this day or, or the, you know, the, the, the team work that comes out of that clearly. But uh, one of the challenges that come with being somebody that's heavily tied to, to sports is not to have all the sports analogies every time you jump into a conversation because, I, you know, some people like it. And other people's, you know, other people can't stand it. So, uh, you know, you got to find that that happy, uh, happy medium there. Uh, but, you know, one of my favorite players coming up was, and still to this day, was Scotty Pippen. And I appreciated his um, his style of playing basketball, which was he could cover and play any any position on the floor. He revolutionized the point guard position. Um, he was amazing on defense, and, and everything and every position that he played on that court mattered to him all the same. There was no area or no side of the court that was any less important uh, than the other. And so I carried that with me through my uh, basketball career. And you asked me what position I played in high school, I'll tell you, I played all of them. You know, and that was one through five. Um, the reality is I played more at the four and five than I probably should have. And as a result, uh, there weren't too many people looking for a six, three uh, power forward, at the uh, at the next level, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, everything happened the way that it was supposed to. Led me to this uh, to this great firm. Led me to the opportunity to to work with Eric and other entrepreneurs. And um, and I'm I'm blessed, and and I, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. Well, it uh, it's, it sounds like uh, Scotty Pippen, or at least the spirit of Scotty Pippen, would have been a good startup CEO, uh, being able to play all the positions and uh, wear all the hats. Um, I, I'm sure you learned a lot too, being in the in the armed forces as well. How did what? How did your path take you down that road? And uh, did did you have kind of one one or two big takeaways from that experience? Yeah. So my path uh, to to get to the military was really twofold. One, I, I you know I had a grandfather that was uh, that I modeled a lot of my life and and career to this uh, to this day after and. And he was a retired colonel in the Air Force, and uh, so I was I was uh, pretty passionate about finding my way uh, to to support uh, the military in the U.S. and and to do that, 
was a pretty easy choice for me. The other side of that is I'm, I'm a product of a single family household. My mother raised me and I have a twin brother as well uh, on her own and uh, to help, you know, as best I could, you know, the, the uh, basketball wasn't paying for everything and the GI bill and the kicker and the tuition assistance that came out of that, it was, it was, uh, you know, really good money. So I went to school, but I was in the military when I was going to school. That's one thing that I always have to remind folks when they, ask how it was, you know, three and a half years into my college education that I got called up and ended up going overseas to serve when I hadn't graduated from college. Well, I wasn't at a military academy, per se, similar to the, um, you know, the Air Force Academy or any of those other things where those guys really aren't in the service, truly in the service until they finish. I, I was at a military college being the Citadel, but it was it's a public school, and not everybody that goes there goes the military route when they finish. I was in the military going to school. And so um, when everything happened with 9-11 and shortly thereafter, you know, I got my papers and, you know, like a lot of people, I was just waiting on them. I was ready to go. I had a cause and this is what I've been training for. This is what I signed up for. Uh, you find out really quick that, you know, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So as, <laughs> as angry as you think you are, and as much as you think you're going to get over there in the Middle East, in the middle of the desert and just start, you know, fixing all the wrongs that, that have happened, you find out real quick, you, you know, you're, you're a part of something much bigger than yourself and a family and a community. And, and there's a lot of things that don't make your uh, local news, CNN, MSNBC, that, that may not necessarily be sexy to use that word, but they all matter. They all matter the same. And I swung my hammer way more times than I ever pulled my trigger when I was downrange. And, and the experiences that I gained out of that and the, um, the, the lessons that carried me to this day is, is really uh, one, one, you know, ones that keep me a little bit level-headed when things can get a little bit pressure cooked in the CPA world, you know, when deadlines are coming and, you know, you can't run from them. You just got to run at them. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're not dodging bullets. We're not talking you know, lives here. We're talking to use uh, Eric's words earlier. We're talking about debits and credits. And so, you know, it, it, uh, you know, there's enough uh, emotion sometimes in the world or in, in my working world when you're dealing with business owners and startups and entrepreneurs that are dealing with a whole bunch of things going on and, and anxiety is high enough as it is. So my uh, one of the biggest takeaways is, is that I try to keep myself pretty level headed and, and leave the emotions uh, for somebody else to have. But I need to be that calming influence when we're having that conversation with somebody to say it's going to be OK. Uh, you know, we, we've got 6,500 folks here at this firm. Uh, I happen to be one of them, but we're, we got your back and we're going to figure out a way to help you get through this. Right. So that's for me, one of the biggest takeaways that I carry into the working wor world today. That it's, it's all right. We're going to be okay. I, I love that philosophy and I'm, I'm sure it helps you perform at a much higher level. I know a ton of the research shows that the, the calmer you can be, the more you can kind of uh, have mindfulness and sort of have a, mind like water uh when things get hard when stress is high the better you're going to perform whether it's on the sports court or field or uh in the field of duty or it's in the field with working with debits and credits so uh, i appreciate you sharing yeah. that perspective um and and you found yourself back in the charlotte area when you came back um and right now charlotte is just on fire it's exploding in terms of the opportunity in tech particularly in fintech but i know a lot of industries do you mind, Brandon? I know you travel all over the Carolinas uh, and all over the country, but uh, you've got a really unique perspective on the, the tech scene in Charlotte. You mind sharing a little bit? 
Yeah, so it's really it's really interesting that over the last you know decade, it's really just taken off, right? And and what's really spurred that along? You know, I I don't know that I'd be the one to put my finger on that one particular thing, but I I would tell you that it's things just like this that we're having a conversation, and then the next guy's having a conversation, and then we got private equity money that's getting that's getting involved, and they're helping to finance some of these startups that a decade ago may not have been able to get that. Now that might be not be your traditional, you know, private equity fund, but that might be an angel fund that that wasn't here and wasn't, you know, as prevalent as it was. So, you know, we we've got the, the money, we've got uh the talent, we've got uh the support infrastructure around here, and we've got people that really have a de- a desire. And I'll tell you that's one of the things in Charlotte that why I'm here to this day, why I haven't left is because there's still some core principles where you won't find a city like Charlotte, in my opinion, that everyone is willing to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you, right? There's, there's not one person that I reach out to, um, frankly, that doesn't respond and say, hey, you know what, I'd, I'd like to have that cup of coffee with you, or maybe you can send me some information on that, because I think um, you know, we've got just like – when we're partnering with you, Matt, and the powder keg team there, we're coming from a uh, spirit of giving, and we've got a lot of folks in this community that are coming from a spirit of giving. And so when you do that and you're putting others before yourself, then naturally that starts to spread. And when that message starts to spread and people are successful and we have a couple unicorns that come out of here, and you don't have to be a unicorn to be considered successful, right? That's a huge there's a huge gap, right, between a unicorn and, um, you know, the guy that's, that's just trying to get uh, some top-line revenue and, and get a bottom line that, that looks sustainable. And so you, you, everybody in that, in that mix um, has a right to be served and heard and be created with opportunities. And, and I think that's really at the heart of the growth that Charlotte has had around the entrepreneur scene, but even more specifically in the tech scene. Uh, Eric, did you know that there was such a tech scene when you uh, decided to go full-time on the, the startup thing, or is it something that was sort of uh, a fortunate circumstance that you, you happened to launch there? No, I, I did not know that there was a tech scene there. And that's probably one of uh, my biggest regret so far is, and I'm sure a lot of maybe your listeners can relate to this, but at the very beginning of that, uh, of that journey, you've got this, you want to be really secretive about whatever you're doing. I don't know. You think somebody's going to steal your idea and it's really just yeah. so unfounded in the, the benefit of reaching out to people and talking to people early on is way outweighs the risk of somebody, you know, stealing your idea, which I don't even think, you know, who has time to, you know, go run back to their house and start coding up whatever idea you have, you know? And so I think, um, I wish I would have gotten involved earlier. Um, It's funny how you can sort of draw a straight line back to certain decisions uh, that you you made. I I went to a pitch competition here um, and part of that startup community was there. And I, I ended up talking to a, a, a venture capital um, partner there and told him what I was doing. He introduced me to somebody who was, uh, who was very involved in the startup community 
here, Keith Ludeman, who uh, had his own mortgage company, was online lender of the year in 2012 and said, you need to go talk to this guy who's sitting a couple miles away from you. Um, went down that route. Keith introduced me to a ton of other people in the, in the startup community, other founders, uh, other people that were, were part of you know, the, that whole ecosystem. And it was something that I really wish I would have done um, earlier. And, and it's good to see such a, uh, such a community exist because it didn't exist 10 years ago, Brandon mentioned 10 years earlier. And, and so the folks that are sort of uh, starting out to, uh, today have it a lot better than some of the, the companies that started here 10 years ago when they were, truly were um, on, their, on their own. And that's not a coincidence. A lot of those folks that are willing to help out are people who were entrepreneurs 10 years ago and realized that, man, I wish I would have had this, this type of uh, community to lean on uh, when I was starting my company. And so I think they've just done a great, great job of giving back to that community. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Brandon mentioned uh, this, th this concept of like giving first and, and seeking to engage with the community by giving um, as, as a, a good approach to engaging in any startup or tech community. Do you have any lessons that you learned along the way, other than starting earlier, when you, when you did start to engage, what were some of the things that worked really well for you? and paid off for the early days of bundle? When, one of the things that I feel like, so I'll talk really quickly, I think um, along the lines of, uh, of just leveraging that community, um, I wanna go there for a second because anybody who's willing to sit down with you and, and talk through your, your idea, talk through your product, you know, there's different levels of help that people provide, but I've never sat with somebody to where there wasn't five minutes of just really insightful conversation. Um, a lot of the things that you talk through are some things get repeated. You know, you might hear the term product market fit like 43 times, but, uh, but as you have these conversations, everybody you meet with, they're going to mention, mention something, mention a person, mention another product, mention something that just makes you think about your product a little bit differently or provide you great advice. And so um, the more conversations like that you can have, the better, and you start stitching together um, consistent feedback and that consistency sort of helps you parse out the things that are important and then the things that um, aren't uh, so important. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. I mean, I, I truly believe uh, everyone has something to offer. Yeah. Um, I love that philosophy. Well, and you're in a really interesting place, not just geographically, but um, industry-wise. You know, right now, fintech is exploding. Uh, almost $40 billion in VC funding, um, you know, or at least some form of funding. Tech companies raise a record $39.57 billion from investors globally just last year in 2018, right. uh, which up 120% percent from the previous year. Um, I know that there is now over 40 VC backed fintech unicorns, you know, the billion dollar plus valuation. Mm -hmm. um, and now that's certainly not the landscape, but it does indicate that there's huge value of huge market value in um, bringing new technology to market and finding new ways to innovate in that space. Um, why do you think right now seems to be uh, a a moment for fintech and I, i'd love to hear both of you but but eric I'd, I'd love your thoughts on 
why you think right now seems to be that time for innovation in tech? Yeah, I think people are starting to realize that, um, you know, there, there's going to be, there's this uh, sort of cohesiveness that's going to exist for a while between the bigger banks. And we are right in the middle of that here in Charlotte. Bank of America is based here, headquartered here. Uh, Wachovia was headquartered here and they were purchased by Wells Fargo um, in 2008 or during the, the financial crisis. And that's a huge part of the ecosystem here. And having um, have, finally starting to have these companies realize that there's, there's some mutual benefit to partnering with fintech companies, that's really where I think you've seen some, some things spur a little bit, right? And then, so that's more on the company side. But then if you look at the consumer side, people are just, you know, they're, they're forever wanting something that's a little bit more easier. I mean, think about Venmo versus PayPal. I think it's, it's like one less click, but one less click got you uh, <laughs> that many more users for, for Venmo. And I think actually PayPal uh, owns Venmo now, but uh, that's a great example of just people want things at their, their fingertips. And um, I think uh, people are also starting to um, trust other uh, other mediums of, uh, of financial services a little bit more where in the past, um, you know, you might be hesitant to enter some of your information in and people are now getting a little bit more comfortable with, uh, you know, uh, one of the biggest interfaces in the fintech world is, is Plaid, which is an API that connects to a lot of banks. And so in order to use that, you're entering in your bank login credentials to these apps and I don't know if I would have done that five years ago. Now I know sort of the back end of it and I'm in the industry. And so people are becoming a lot uh, more willing um, to do that. And so, you know, I think that a key thing that both sides are going to have to realize that I really truly believe in is what, you know, there's still so much value in the traditional banking model. And I, and I talk about this because I feel like it's so, plainly right in front of us, which is the way that banks make money is they borrow deposits at a 1% uh, interest rate and they lend them out at a 4% interest rate and they make the difference, right? And so a lot of fintech companies can't do that, right? You've got to have both sides of that balance sheet to make money in banking. And so there's, there's applications that can help sort of facilitate that. Um, and that that really means that those those two worlds are going to have to work together and and i think there's also been a little bit of an aversion on the fintech side to to sort of face the regulatory component of the industry based on everybody's looking for sort of like the the, the round the corner way um and i think that the the largest uh successes are going to be the people that sort of face that um head on Oh, absolutely. It does seem like a certain, certainly some amount of disruption happening right now. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, curious to see what you've been seeing. I know you work with a lot of different fintech companies, but also a lot of just financial institutions, including CLA as a financial institution at some level. Yeah, yeah so that's interesting. I, as, as Eric was talking, I was thinking about it really from both sides of that coin, right? As a, as a professional service firm ourselves um, and, and talking and working with uh, folks in the marketplace. It really, to me, just 
tends to be that the value in that data, right? And the, abil the ability to uh, predict what your consumer base is going to do to make the best use of your time to be able to monetize that and ultimately drive results to the business. I'm just seeing that over and over again. You know, Eric gave a good example at the front end of this to, that went through the whole loan buying and the calling uh, exercise that goes on where there's not really anything predictive about that. You're going through the exercise, you bought some leads, you make a hundred phone calls with the hope that one of those would, would turn out. Well, what if you had the, the power there via AI to, to let something tell you which one of those, which one was the one, which one was the one and you just call that one. Now that's, that might be a bit of a, a pipe dream there, but that's a lot of what's going on in, in the, in the world that, that, I, that I'm in, both internally we're doing that as a firm, right, to, to, as, as the largest uh, firm in the country working with privately held businesses and their owners. You can imagine the, the, the power behind the data that, that we sit on, and we use that uh, through our uh, metrics and analysis to see how do you stack up within your particular industries against your peers. You know, can we help you from a business standpoint to, to identify maybe a blind spot that lets Let's uh, approach that a little bit differently. Um, but man, the, the power behind that data and what people are doing, if you're not figuring out a way to uh, be more creative, to be innovative, to be disruptive, uh, the, the reality is, is that your competitors are already uh, doing that and you're getting behind. So to, to go back through to myself uh, doing a sports analogy, I tell my son this all the time when he tells me he's pretty diehard about, you know, playing football or, or playing lacrosse. And I come in and he's been on that PS4 for four or five hours uh, doing whatever he's doing. I ask him candidly, did you get outside? Did you, did you get any work in today? Right? If you didn't get any work in, then you effectively got worse because your competitor did something about that. Well, that's exactly what's going on in the marketplace right now is that, your competitor is trying to figure out a way to make a better, more informed decision with the data that's out there that's multiplying twofold every other year. And if you're not doing something about it, you're getting behind. I, I love that analogy. And, and that is in some intense parenting right there. I'm glad, uh, <laughs> I'm glad that that's being pushed down generationally. Um, you, you mentioned, Brandon, uh, AI, which of course has huge implications in the fintech space. Uh, but also, I, I saw a study recently from ING um, that found that 8% of Americans and 9% of Europeans own some form of cryptocurrency. Um, and out of the those same respondents, 21% of Americans and 25% of Europeans expect to own cryptocurrency in the near future. Um, you know, there's obviously security token offerings, there's blockchain extending into lending and investing. Uh, and I'm curious, Eric, what you're seeing on the ground as a, as a founder of a fintech company, how are some of these technologies disrupting uh, the financial industry in general? Sure. So I think, you know, one of the first things that I, I think that I've started to hear a little bit is there's a... Um, the, the terms are being thrown a lot, thrown around a lot. So cryptocurrency, blockchain, and, and I think there's a little bit of fatigue with the terms. And, and sometimes the application of the technology technology doesn't even make 
that much sense. I, I was talking to somebody uh, the other day and he had a, a great idea, um, really good idea. And I, and I, and they were like, and you know, we're going to do uh, cryptocurrency tokens as well. And I, and I said, well, you know, maybe like put that one to the side and just focus on your like core user case that you just told me about that I think is an incredible idea. So I, you know, my concern a little bit is that um, people throw that technology just to, to be able to say it right when it isn't always necessarily needed. I think it's a, um, I think blockchain in particular is uh, a good um, technology and, and there's some um, really good use cases. I think there's some efficiency work that needs to be uh, done there. Um, I'm personally a little bit anti-cryptocurrency. I have a background in, in economics and have done a lot of reading on just sort of the, what the value um, is of, of cryptocurrency in terms of uh, when you think about dollars, what, what's the, what is the value of a dollar? Not, not the, you know, the number amount, but you know, why do you have dollars, the store of value, the, the, the easy, you can easily transact with it, you can pay taxes with it, you know, all these things. Um, that a lot of um, really well-known econ economists are sort of raising the point of, um, you know, what what's wrong with our current system? And I don't want to be um, sort of missing the boat on that. But at the same time, um, it, it's, it's funny to me because uh, a lot of people initially ask a, an entrepreneur, what problem are you solving? That's the number one question. They ask you what problem are you solving? And, and so I think it's, for me, I'm saying I'm thinking, well, what problem is cryptocurrency solving? Because I can hold my iPhone up and pay with um, Apple Pay, and it takes my thumbprint in two seconds, and I don't feel the need for an additional uh, mode of currency. So, um, and, and I know there's some other uses for it in, in um, developing countries and things like that that might experience a little bit higher inflation. But, um, but that's more of a, a personal opinion. And um, but I do think that there's some legs to some of the underlying technology. Well, I, I think we could probably have a whole podcast series. And I know that those exist on cryptocurrency. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that lie uh, yeah. at this point in this episode. Um, but certainly a very exciting space and exciting topic. Um, but something that you said really stood out to me because I, I recently read um, a report for 2019 trends uh, in fintech that McKinsey and company put together, a big consulting firm. And one of the top points uh, in that article, and, and one of the biggest takeaways was that good execution and solid business models in fintech can trump exotic technology. Um, it, it really is about, at the end of the day, you still have to do business, and your, your solid foundation of business model, uh, solid execution, and I, I think that really kind of uh, goes hand in hand with, one, what you were just saying, Eric, but two, the whole philosophy, at least from what I've experienced working with CLA, um, and Brandon, I, I'd love to hear, you know, as, before we close here, just kind of hear your philosophy in general, of why startups and high growth technology companies really need to be paying attention to um, their business model and execution, which of course is, is um, you can't execute well if you don't have good metrics and uh, good accounting of where the money is going uh, or where the money is coming in. Yeah, so from a business model perspective, you know, I, I really believe that it, it all gets down to, to surrounding yourself. And I, I, I at least have always tried to do this. Surround, at least I surround myself with folks that I think are better and smarter uh, than myself and not try to fool myself into believing 
that I can get it all done on my own. You know, having been with this firm really going on for about 15 years now, I'll tell you that that's really one of the bigger challenges that you see when you're out there meeting with entrepreneurs um, at all levels, right, is that, yeah, they're sharp. Yeah, they've got a great work, work ethic, but sometimes they can be stubborn. Sometimes they need somebody that's going to be candid with them and going to uh, be honest, open that door and have a transparent conversation and say, look, you know, I, I get the why. I believe in, in what, you're, what you're doing here. But here's some of the challenges that I'm hearing as we're having this cup of coffee, that it sounds like you're spending too much time in the back office. Do you have somebody that can help you do that? right? It sounds to me like you're, you're not out on the streets telling people your story, that you haven't gotten your product developed. What, what's going on in your day-to-day and -day, your week that is keeping you from doing that? And then leaning in to try and lend some advice to say, hey, may, maybe here's an opportunity for you, right? Here's an opportunity to look at this a little bit differently and see if maybe that will, that will work for you, because um, was, I think Eric will attest to this. We've had this, you know, we've had a similar conversation about this. Is that, you know, you can have the greatest idea in the world, but if nobody knows about it, and if you're not out there selling that product, then you cannot possibly have a successful business. Because at the end of the day, you've got to get those residuals. You've got to get that monthly recurring mm -hmm. revenue, and so we got to get you out of the weeds and get you out on the streets to tell your story so that people believe in you as, as much as I do. And that really is, is from, a, you know, from a business model standpoint, when you keep it simple, man, it, it makes it a lot easier because the debits and credit stuff, I think there's a lot of firms out there that do, do that and do that very well. Um, but it really gets, gets down to that value add and that partnership and that willingness to lean in and make an investment in these entrepreneurs and these and the startup community to help create opportunities for them, not just for them individually, but for the community. Eric, do you have any uh, advice, you know, as a as a founder there, but as a strategic leader at a tech company, um, for someone who's looking at hiring someone or outsourcing a critical part of the business? Um, do you have any advice for anyone that might be considering doing something like outsourcing uh, the accounting back office or outsourcing another function of the business? Yeah, I think you have to really understand what your core competency as a company is. And you also have to understand what stage uh, of the life cycle of your company that you're in, right? And so as an example, I thought um, long and hard early on about, do I want to do some development work? Um, outsourced, uh, or do I want to hire everything in-house, right? And so if you're starting out and building a product, uh, you have to really think about, okay, if you get a back-end developer and a front-end developer and somebody that's working on the database and somebody that's designing, I mean, you're talking about four or five people um, right there, and they're not going to be fully utilized at a smaller company 100% of the time, right? So there are certain things that you definitely want to um, outsource a little bit. There's some things that maybe you want to do yourself. It only takes a couple hours, you know, you do some accounting work yourself and then you hand it over to CLA later and let them clean up your mess. And, um, but, uh, 
but uh, no, I, uh, luckily, uh, uh, luckily our books are in um, uh, a good shape because uh, my wife uh, is also a CPA and uh, her and Brandon have been on the phone quite a bit. But um, the point is, is there's certain things that you, you want to make sure that you're focusing your energy on. And really, um, as, the, as a founder of a company, that should be mainly about the vision, right? And how you're going to execute on that vision, right? So those two key pieces, right? Is how do you build a product and how do you get people to use the product? I mean, I mean that's pretty much um, all it comes down to. And, and you've got to have your, your eye on those two things 100% of the time. Well, I, Eric and Brandon, I appreciate both of you sharing some of your advice, uh, some of your own personal stories, but then also what you're seeing there um, in Charlotte and in the Carolinas, but also in the fintech space at large. I've really had fun in this conversation, so I hope we can continue it again soon. Thanks, yeah. Matt. I Thanks really appreciate it. it. Yeah, likewise. Well, uh, for those still tuning in, I, I want to say thank you um, for listening to these stories. Hopefully, you walk away with some new things to try out in your own business or in your own role. Um, and at the same time, I hope you feel a little bit inspired by the success of both of these professionals. Uh, you can follow Brandon and CLA at CLA Connect and follow Eric at Eric uh, Major. That's at Eric Major, that's M-A-G-E-R. Uh, we'll link that all up in the show notes. You can check that out on powderkeg.com and to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders Outside of Silicon Valley, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, powderkeg.com slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups.